Shalom and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to him, that they might be warned. Here we will sound the alarm that our time on earth is short, and we have no time to waste. We will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war we're standing in the middle of. Today, we're going to talk with our friend, Pastor Gary Durham, and we're going to talk about something interesting, a new calendar maybe that has been discovered or acknowledged at least, and Mm -hmm. what it means to the believer, and maybe some ideas about what we should be starting to think about. Welcome to show, Pastor. Uh, It's always good to be here, J.D. and Grant. So we have this gentleman who has done a great study on the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. and he has, I don't know if you want to call it discovered or uh, rediscovered maybe, what some of the original calendar that God gave man kind of looked like. And then this is, we're going to be talking a little bit about the work of Ken Johnson. Yeah. Ken Johnson is not the only scholar who's done work in this area, but he, he certainly has written a good book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just recently came out. I don't know how recent it is. I, I read it a few months ago, and uh, it really does draw some very important conclusions about uh, getting the original calendar from creation to now corrected and how we can validate that correction. And the Dead Sea Scrolls helps us tremendously there because we discovered that the Essenes, who called themselves the Sons of Light, were people who were very, very meticulous about getting the calendar right and getting back to the original calendar because, as we know from history, and they document as well uh, in many of their scrolls, the, uh, the Jews corrupted the calendar under, especially Antiochus Epiphanes, when uh, the Greeks, the Seleucian Empire, was controlling uh, the Jews after the return from the exile. Uh, they, of course, corrupted the Jews, and they forced them to abandon the Jewish calendar that had been kept accurate, and the seven-day cycles, and the seven-year cycles, and the Sabbaths, and so on, and they forced them to take the Greek calendar. What happened then is they never got back, even after the Maccabean revolt and the success of that, and the Maccabeans did try to restore the original calendar, but they never really got it right. And there were several different calendars that were used. The Pharisees had some. There were actually rabbis who tinkered with the calendar quite a bit. And even after the time of Christ, when Christians were using uh, the prophecies, for example, of Daniel to show that Jesus indeed did arrive in Jerusalem exactly on Nisan the 9th, you know, exactly the year that he should and that he was crucified on that Passover and that he rose on, on uh, you know, the the uh, Feast of First Fruits, and, and of course showing that you know everything was perfectly on schedule with Jesus being the Messiah, the rabbis didn't like that. In fact, they even warned people uh, severely about using it that way. And so what happened was there were actually some rabbis that took and actually changed the calendar again. They actually removed years to make it look like now if you did the calculations, Jesus didn't arrive at the right time. He wasn't the Messiah. And that Messiah was kind of a, maybe a uh, symbolic thing. And so you just kind of, you know, uh, we don't really know when he's going to arrive and so on. So as a believer today, why is getting a 
calendar right that was given f some 5,000 years ago, why is it important to us? Well, without going into technical detail, it's that God was very, very stern with the Jews about keeping the calendar correct and keeping the Sabbaths correct. And one of the reasons that's correct, it, it was God was so important, I mean, so important that God had them do that, is because it enables us to be able to follow through with God's prophecies. God prophesies things, and they're often uh, related very intricately to the correct calendar of creation. And when you get that calendar right, you're able to take these prophecies. And for example, we can take some of the prophecies of Daniel, and we'll talk about a few of them in a moment, and you can actually calculate out the things that he was told and come to a specific date and see a fulfillment that actually happened exactly on the day if you've got the right calendar. If you've got the wrong calendar, it doesn't, doesn't work. And that's one of the ways we validate. We now have got the calendar restored back as it was originally supposed to be because we can do those calculations. They come out dead on. Hmm. And so, uh, and we can talk about those in a few moments because I think that really encourages us that now that calendar also is going to tell us some things about what the early church fathers taught, talked about, and that, and that is about the end of the age. So if we get the calendar correct, mm -hmm. then we can go back and validate the calendar using prophecy. Exactly. And and validating those dates based upon when the calendar said they would happen and when they actually did. Yes. And if those things can validate each other, then we should be able to validate things going forward that are still prophecy that haven't been fulfilled yet. Yes, and usually what prophecies do, now some of Daniel's prophecies were so specific that they take you literally to a day, uh, and sometimes they take you to a very small period of time, but usually they take you to a day. Now, Jesus tells us, now what we must remember is we've been given, a, Daniel had a calendar in Daniel 9, which is the uh, calendar given to him by Gabriel. Jesus also gave us a calendar, and we spent three uh, podcast talking about the calendar of right. Jesus. And, you know, it's the Olivet Discourse properly understood from the original language. It is a definite calendar because Jesus uses time sequence words. And it's a calendar that gives us a sequence of events. Mm -hmm. When you see this happen, then you'll know that this is about to happen. And then when you see this happen, then you'll know that this is about to happen and so on. And so it helps us identify seasons or times when things are, are unfolding. And we've got to learn to read it properly, and that's what we talked about. And we can revisit that a little bit because one of the things we're going to see is that by the corrections that we get when we properly look at these Dead Sea Scroll calendars and their corrections and show that they do come out right with prophecy, uh, is that we're able to look ahead. And when Paul says that day should not surprise you like a thief because you're all children of the light, children of the day, what he's saying is, we can know the seasons. We can't know the day or the hour Jesus is actually coming, but we can know the season. And that's why Jesus said, when you see these things begin to take place, look up, your redemption is near at hand. Right. And so we should be able to do that. And if we know the calendar, that validates that even more. Right. And you would think that if we knew the calendar and we could start seeing when the the dates of prophecy are about to unfold or when they do unfold going forward, we may, like you said, we, we won't know the day or the time, but we could probably get pretty close within a few years of when it's like, 
hey, this is probably within the next few couple of years that we're going to see this thing happen. Mm -hmm. And as we follow this calendar, we can start to see when the calendar lines up to the sequence that Jesus gave us. Yes, yes. And start to walk, well, wait a minute. We know that this is happening now or this happened in, you know, this year, mm -hmm. 1960, whatever, you know, we're probably right. going to talk about Israel a little bit right. here. Yes. My guess is. Yes. But because those are important prophecies. Yes. And they took place. And my guess is you're going to tell us that they ex happened exactly when the prophecy said it was supposed to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So even in our timeline, or at least in my timeline, we can say we've seen this coalescence. Mm -hmm. And if we see that coalescence there and we start walking this timeline forward now, on the sequence we're told, we can start to predict when things should happen yes. or very nearly so. Yeah, we should be a, a, at least people with our eyes wide open, our ears wide open, and know exactly the season we're in. And and those seasons are very specific, and we know certain very definite things are going to happen in those seasons and, of time. And I think you, talk, you preach on this a couple of times, but it's just like when the arrival of Christ, those magi knew because they were told yes. about the seasons and they knew the stars and God had always provided a way for people to know things that were coming right. in the way he wanted them to know. Yeah. And that's why I believe at least that's why he said, we should not be surprised because I've given you the tools to know about when it's going to happen. Right. And yeah. And of course, you know, around the Christmas time, I did talk about the importance of the Magi knowing Daniel's calendar. It was not the fact that a star appeared. Yes, that was important to them because they did understand the ancient astrology and they understood how to read it, which was a gospel astrology, not the corrupted astrology mm -hmm. of paganism. But what was really important to them was that it matched Daniel's calendar. And they were from the Eastern school, which, which Philo talks about, who lived during the time of Christ and the apostles. And they were most likely, probably Jews, not all of them, but they were people who followed Daniel, the greatest magi of all time, who had actually become the prime minister of the great media Persian empire. So they followed him. They knew his prophecies probably verbatim. They could quote them verbatim. And when that star appeared in the time frame it did, according to the calendar, they knew there was only 30-some years left before Messiah had to die because that's right. what they, Daniel had told them in Daniel 9. And so they said, he's got to come soon. The star appears. It's in the right constellations. It's in the gospel story that's, being in, that's in the stars. And they realize it matches the counter. And so they basically said, saddle up, boys. It's time to go find the Messiah. So what was it? I'm sorry. I couldn't speak for a second. <laughs> what was a Magi? A magi was basically, uh, in, they started out as the wise men of Babylon, as we meet them in the Bible, uh, and they were basically advisors to the king on science, uh, astrology, politics, philosophy, uh, just basically the, the, the broad view of the sciences of the day. And they were taken from various religions and disciplines. Uh, you know, Daniel and the, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we know them from their mm -hmm. Babylonian names, were among these wise men. And there were other wise men who, of course, were, you know, servants of the pagan gods, and they were astrologers of the wrong kind of astrology and so on. But Daniel and his three friends, you know, distinguished themselves because they followed the true God and had great success. Uh, when the Media Persians took over, they among the Medes, there was a cast of uh, similar 
types of persons who were called magi. And when they took over, they absorbed the wise men of Babylon into that caste. And Daniel and his three Hebrew children were, uh, as we know them, were absorbed into that. Uh, they became advisors to the king and became quite prominent. Daniel, we know, became the second ruler under Darius over the whole empire. Uh, that's what the Daniel and the Lion's Den story is about. They tried to keep him from becoming that second ruler. They didn't succeed. They ended up in the lion's den and devoured, not Daniel, and Daniel got his promotion. So he was the most powerful magi who ever lived. And uh, so that's what a magi was. And they were people who understood the stars. There were many astrologers among the magi. But the ones who followed the true God followed the ancient astrology that they believed Adam, Seth, and Enoch had developed because God had revealed to Adam how the gospel will unfold and how the serpent's head would be crushed. And it was all in symbol, painted on the stars, merely as a kind of a hieroglyphic record. Mm -hmm. It was nothing to do with the stars controlling us. It had everything to do with just simply trying to preserve the message that had been given to them in a way that future generations could relate to it. Of course, Satan corrupted it, and then it became useless. And so we but have the, to write it down. The reason I asked the question is, is and, and thank you for the answer, because this is exactly what I was hoping you would say for people to hear. The, the, the Magi were people that studied prophecy. Yes. They studied the the symbols and the the seasons and the stars and everything that God gave us to know when things were going to happen. Yeah. And so that's what God has expected for the rest of us going forward as well, to be much like these magi, to study the prophecy, to study the stars, to visualize the signs, to see them coming. Mm -hmm. He didn't tell us that these things was going to happen, these signs will happen for us to ignore it. Right. Well, God has always told us what he's going to do, then given us like things to follow right. and then done it. Like yes. the, ever since the garden, he has done that. Yes, he's done that. Yeah, there's a roadmap always. Yes. And and I love what you're saying because if we were to put this in theological terms, uh, in theology, we talk about uh, the fact that there is natural theology and then there in and natural revelation. And then there is, there is special revelation, which is, of course, is God's word, mm -hmm. which we believe is the inspired word of God. But God has, Paul argues in the first chapter of Romans that God has so revealed himself even through the creation that people are without excuse because they can see God's divine qualities and they can see his divine power from the things that have been made. So we are able to read the book of nature. Mm -hmm. And so the Magi were really good at reading the book of nature. And they were also good, the ones that were following Daniel were good at reading the special revelation. And we know they had the book of Daniel. We don't know how much more of the uh, book they had of the Old Testament because the, uh, uh, even though the Old Testament was pretty much canonized by the time of Christ, the re they recognized the canon uh, it was clear that the Magi didn't understand that the, Mag that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. So when they get to Jerusalem, they're asking, where is he? Because they're thinking he would be in the capital city. And when, of course, Herod asked the theologians among the rabbis, they, they quote, of course, the prophecy that he would come from Bethlehem. And then, of course, that's when they go to Bethlehem and find Jesus as a toddler. See, again, I see that as how God plans lay out. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has the same skill set, the same gifts. Right. These guys were very gifted at following the prophecy and knowing a 
when it should happen, right? But not necessarily where they had right. to go to a different expert to get the where. Right. That's how God works. And yeah. God's prophecies are spread throughout the Bible in such a manner. Yeah, and and it's important because we have. This is why theology is so important when it's done correctly as biblical theology, because <clears throat> what we do is we take the pieces that God has given us, and then we follow his directions on how to assemble it. Mm-hmm. You can certainly misassemble. Right. You can assemble the Bible in a way to almost prove anything if you're not paying attention to what God has said. But if you assemble it according to the overall, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a living cell. It not only can replicate the DNA and replicate the amino acids and replicate the proteins, it also has instructions on the DNA code on how they're to be assembled and what sequence and how you put them together to make it all live. You know, mm-hmm. so you got to do the same thing with the Bible. There's a lot of different pieces and they're all scattered around in different places in Revelation, but you put them together according to God's instructions and according to the overall message of the Bible. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. Right. And when we do, and and then also make sure it lines up with what God has said in his other revelation, which is in natural uh, revelation, and they always line up when we improperly interpret them. That's why science and religion are not in conflict. They're actually uh, complementary. Yeah, and, and I'll be honest, I've actually seen some of that in my own life growing up, and I didn't realize what it was until later in life. But understanding, being able to see the seasons and the things that are coming, my grandfather was a farmer, and he was so in tune with the plants and, and mm-hmm. the animals and how things. He could tell you when a season was about to change by what was going on with the plants around him and the, and the right. animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's very similar to what you're talking about with, with the way the Magi studied prophecy and the Magi understood the natural environment and they understood the world around them mm-hmm. and what was going on in the stars and the heavens and in the earth. Right. You, we have to be students of the creation of God Right. And of what his word says. Yeah. Both, not just one. Yeah. So, for example, prophecy tells us there will be certain political climates and certain attitudes on the planet. We've got to be able to read that. We need to be aware of what what's going on in politics. Although politics may not be the answer, it is certainly one of our indicators of what's going on in the world because we're told these will be the climates of politics. These will be the climates of attitudes. This will be the, the status of people's morality when we get close to the end of the age. And we can gauge that and we can see that and we see what's going on. Globalism is going to be a push at the end of the age. Already we're starting to see that push. We're starting to see that, uh, that almost irrational passion to make that happen at any cost. Mm-hmm. Well, that tells us that something's driving it, that is spiritual and it's a dark spirituality. Yeah, so let's back up for just a second and talk a little bit more about the calendar. Um, okay. We had, we've talked about some prophecies that uh, that have happened in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we talk about those for just a second, about how they were predicted and, and how they unfolded. Well, instead of doing a technical thing here on the podcast, which I think would just get a little confusing <laughs> yeah, if we not. start trying to do all the calendar you, math. You need go, your graphs to yeah, back yeah, up there. Yeah, I, I love doing my graphs. <laughs> we're not yeah. visual just yeah, yet. Yeah, we're not doing visuals yet. But uh, and, and especially when you're dealing with calendars, calendars can get very complicated in the sense that we're rectifying calendars and we're rectifying. Uh, so, for example, uh, when you're going from 
you know, BC, as we talk about in using the original format, BC to AD, a lot of people will put a zero year in there. Well, there is no zero year. Right. And so when you're doing your calendars, you got to account for that. And right. and when you're doing prophetic calendars, you got to realize it's a 360-day calendar, and you have to convert it to a solar calendar, which is 365.25 days, and so, and so on. You have to there's a lot of math involved. So what I will do is just talk about a couple of things here. Is that, for example, in Daniel 4, if you dig into the language uh, in some of the things that are said to Nebuchadnezzar when God judges him, mm-hmm. you will discover that God is actually doing something that we see constantly throughout the Old Testament. He's giving a double implication, a double prophecy. It has a fulfillment for Nebuchadnezzar's time, mm-hmm. but it also has a second meaning and the words that are used are are perfectly chosen to have that second meaning. And, and and if you really want to know about that, read Ken Johnson's book because he just perfectly lays all that out. But the point is, is that it tells you about a period of time and that there's going to be like 2,500, I think, in 20 prophetic years uh, from a certain point. And what happens is, is when you work the calendar out and what it's telling you is that's when the Jewish nation will get its nation back the second time, okay? And that's it's interesting. They're going to get it back the second time. Well, when you work it out, it comes exactly to May 14, 1948. Guess what? The <laughs> exact day that the UN declared Israel to be a sovereign state yep. for the first time in several thousand years. Right. And so that Daniel prophecy works out exactly perfect when the calendar is right. And so, and then we get the same thing. Uh, there is another prophecy that is given in Daniel, uh, where which has to do with some of Cyrus's decrees about, uh, you know, the return of the Jews and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And uh, we, of course, we all know about the one in regard to the 70 weeks of Daniel and how that worked out to the exact time of Jesus's death. So that perfectly worked out. But there's another one in here, and it, if you take it forward exactly the number of days it says, it tells you that the Jews will get back their temple mount, but they will not be able to rebuild their temple. Well, when you work that out, it comes out to June 7th, 1967, which is the exact day that the Jews in the Six-Day War got back the temple mount. And it was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And so we know we, and so in using the Dead Sea Scroll calendar, which is a corrected calendar and, uh, and going back and, and being able to validate that it works out with all these prophecies shows us that now we've got the calendar corrected back as it should be. And we can also validate that through calendar, you know, research that has been done to show that the Essenes were doing the right thing and trying to correct it. And so they had a purpose uh, God was using the Essenes out there in the desert. They were doing something significant. And uh, so what this tells us then is that something significant comes out of that. And uh, Ken Johnson talks about that in his book. And that is, is that the early church fathers, who also understood some of these things, begin to talk about the fact that there was some symbolism all through the scriptures that we as Christians should take note of, and that had to do with the symbolism uh, of the ages 
being represented, thousand-year periods of time being represented by a day of creation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is not by chance that Peter comes up with this little jingle, a day is like a thousand years of the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. He just didn't pull that out of thin air. Uh, many of the early church fathers uh, actually believed that this was exactly how God had laid out the, uh, the ages. In fact, if you look at the ancient early church fathers in the epistle of Barnabas, for example, which almost was considered canonical. It was not because it wasn't written by an apostle and it was not uh, written by a companion of an apostle, so it was not allowed into the canon. But it was considered a reliable book and it was often used in the churches. But in the epistle of Barnabas in 15, I think, 7, 9, uh, it talks about, it teaches that God is going to literally allow the ages to unfold and there will be 6,000-year periods until the end of this present age, and then the seventh thousand years will be the great Sabbath or millennium, and then it will be a thousand-year millennium. And uh, if you take the original calendar from Adam moving forward, you discover that uh, all of these church fathers, uh, Arrhenius believed this, uh, and he, he talks about it in his writing against heresy, uh, uh Commodianus uh, also talks about this, um, and uh, there, there were several other the church fathers. Uh, Methodius uh, talks about it and so on. But all of these church fathers, uh, uh, Lactanius talked about it, but the point is, is they all say the same thing. The, uh, there will be 6,000 years. Well, when you work that out, if indeed that is valid, you, you would come to the year 2075. Now, that means that right now at 2022, mm-hmm. you can see that we are only about 53 years away from what would be the end of that 6,000-year period. Now, if you're going to get the 70th week of Daniel in that 6,000-year period, which they believed you would, then, of course, that takes it down to 47. To 47. Right. And and the point is, is that would just be a kind of a seasonal thing. We don't know exactly how it will unfold. We certainly couldn't predict the exact day or hour of Jesus coming. No. But we could predict the seasons. And what that tells me is we've got a lot of people running around like their hair's on fire, claiming that because they've been taught some really fallacious theories about the coming of Jesus, you know, that it's all going to happen tomorrow and that, you know, there's going to be this secret kidnapping happen and everything. But the truth is, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing that. What we should be doing is, is looking at the seasons and looking at the calendars of the Scripture and looking at where we're at in it. And if we go back to the Olivet Discourse, we can see that we're somewhere between verses 9 through 14 of Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. And that verse 15 puts us in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. Verse 15 is the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist creates in the temple. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 that that will be the Antichrist unveiled, apocalypto, unmasked, and he will actually be demanding to be worshipped as God. Mm. And so as a result of that, we know that the, uh, you know, we are moving toward that period of time. So we have 40-some years, really, 
to prepare a generation of Christians to be able to stand. And this is going to be a very violent, troubling period of time over these next 40-some years as we move toward the 70th week of Daniel, because the world is going to be being prepared. doesn't mean that we can't make progress back the other direction. It does, and in fact, I believe it means that we can, because I don't think if we, unless we do that, we could last that long. But the point is, is that we need to de- be defining some very important things, which I want to, I think we want to talk about, yes. that we Christians should be committed to. Because Absolutely. right now, the church has been so evangelized by the culture instead of evangelizing the culture, mm-hmm. that most Christians would not stand to and endure to the end and be saved. And Jesus makes it very clear, unless you stand, unless you endure to the end, you know, it, you know as, as one of the fathers said, you know, the whole time of your face will do you no good unless you stand true to the end. Right. Well, and just to interject this here, I want to make sure that I want to tell you the date for today based upon this, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls calendar. So everybody understands what we're talking about. So today's date would be Tevet 215946 mm-hmm. out of a 6,000 year calendar. Right. So what do we do with this information? I guess is the big question that people would want to ask. And I think that well, exactly what you talked about, there are people alive today. I firmly believe there are people alive today that will see the end. Yes. That that calendar says the generation that will be forced to stand in the face of the evil one are here now. Yes. That's our children and our grandchildren. Yes, and that's the people we should be really focusing on making sure that they are not educated in worldly systems, not educated at the kindergarten level, at the elementary level, at the high school level, or at the university level, uh, or in their postgraduate levels. They should be educated in the culture of a Christian worldview and be taught to think like Christians, which would be to think rationally and to think also very scientifically, but at the same time to think scripturally. And if we do that, they'll be able to stand and see through the propaganda because this is going to become... It already is, but it's going to be an even more propaganda-soaked culture. Daniel says, the truth shall be cast to the ground. Lies are going to predominate, and deception will be the order of the day, and it's already here. And people just have to be trained to embrace the truth, and they'll be able to smell a lie coming down the road. But if they don't embrace the (laughs) truth, they can't detect it. And I think that God blessed us so greatly with the last two years. And I know for so many people, that's going to sound like the craziest thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. But look what we have learned out of this last two years. We've got to see the lies for what they are. For people that are looking, you can see the corruption. You can see the lies. You can see how easily people are tricked into doing things against their, their common good. Right. You can see how easily people buy into fear you can see how easily people just toe a line, whether it makes sense or not. Yeah. And we've also been made aware of how far to the left or away from biblical teaching the church is. Yeah. Many churches today are very worldly places. Mm-hmm. The, the people sitting in those pews are firmly planted, both feet in the world. Yes. And, and we're told time and time again, we can't be that way. 
So we got a wake-up call, in my opinion, in the last two years of where we're really at as a church. I mean, certainly looks a lot like the Church of Laodicea, if you ask yeah. me. Well, and, and what you're really talking about, uh, J.D., is this. We have had, especially, let's just talk about kind of our own our own uh, little community, so to speak, the evangelical mm-hmm, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had way too much of what we would call, I think what Dallas Willard would have called, sin management gospel. Yes. Which is this whole idea that basically you get your <clears throat> get out of jail free card when you confess certain facts about Jesus. Yep. And it, but we completely deny the power of God to transform a life, to liberate a life, to change a life, to set a person free and make them a new creation. We basically have this idea that we're just managing sin. We're no different. We're just, you know, and we love to say we're sinners saved by grace. Well, that's true, but there's a way of saying that and meaning exactly the wrong thing. The Bible calls us saints, holy ones, not just because we're made holy by the blood of Christ, which we are, but we're also, there is a holiness that's imparted to us because the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and begins transforming us and conforming us to Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. as a result of that, Christianity is about becoming a new creation. I remember yeah, I, this whole idea of being a different creature. Yeah. It, Many of the people sitting in the churches are not different creatures. Yeah. And you notice that in the Advent series this year, I, I really focused in in the last couple of messages on this idea of a uh, that Jesus, as the baby in the manger, was the new creation singularity. Mm-hmm. He From him was going to explode a whole new creation. And what does he start with? Human beings. He's going to make brand new humans. Yep. And Christians are literally brand new humans. Our spirit has already been put to death with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ. We are reborn. We've had a second birth. We are resurrected people. And our physical body will get its immortality when God says, okay, it's time for the uh, consummation of all things. But the point is, is we're already new creations. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand you should be living a different kind of life. Absolutely. And Paul in Romans just makes that so clear that, you know, if you, can we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Then he uses the word meganoite in the Greek, which is a really hard phrase to basically translate, but it just means what a, what an abominable thought. Just perish that thought. Mm -hmm. That is ridiculous. How could you even think that way? Because we died with Christ. We are no longer part of that old world system. So how could we live in sin any longer? And there are too many Christians who are going, oh yeah, we, 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 do, we do the same things. We do the same pornography. We, we commit fornication too. We shack up with you know people too. We hook up too. Mm-hmm. We do all these things. We go get drunk too, but we're just forgiven. Well, I got news for you. Jesus doesn't know anything about that. Except you repent, which means have a change of mind, change of attitude, change of conduct, you shall perish, said Jesus. Yeah, and there's too many Christians that think they can come to church on Sunday and say, I'm sorry, and I won't do it again, and Monday we're back at it. Oh, yeah. It's almost like the idea, you know, the misuse of You don't get to shower every week (laughs) and think that this is how you're supposed to live. Well, it's like the, you know, the... uh, you know, Hippies somebody do. said, you know, it's like huh? mafia. Do. <laughs> yeah, it's like mafia figures who would go into 
the priests to do confessions, and they would confess things that they were getting ready to do because you know they wanted oh, pre yeah 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 they they, <laughs> they wanted to be forgiven ahead of time you know and and which is just a f- utter foolishness because if you're not willing to repent when you ask for forgiveness you're also required to repent, which means you change your mind and you don't want to do that anymore. And that's the part that we really, really need to start teaching people about true repentance. Yes. And and becoming this new creature because we'll, we won. You never get to experience the, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. None of that happens if you're not truly a changed person. Yeah. You, you can't do that and still have your foot, you know, having an affair with your secretary or you know, going out to get drunk on next Friday night with my buddies. And it's already a plan, but you're at church on Sunday asking for forgiveness for what you did last week. Yeah. You were already and planning, planning on doing do it the following sin. Yeah. Guess what God says about that? Yeah. You've already sinned. He called, he calls it hypocrisy. Yeah. And, and it makes it very clear that such hypocrites shall not be so a part of the kingdom. So this is, this is going to be a little bit hard for Christians to swallow this topic because we have to do this as self-examination. Yeah. Well, people have this false idea that to say that you have to live a certain quality of life is to make some kind of work salvation. No, 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 no. What comes out of your life, the fruit and the good works, is a product of your salvation. uh, It's not what saves you. Yes. But the Bible makes it explicitly clear that if you are a good tree, you will produce good fruit. And if you're not producing good fruit... You ain't, if you allow me to use bad language, <laughs> you ain't a good tree, and you're going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And it's just that See, the Bible is just straightforward about and that. And I talk to people all the time about that. The relationship you have with Jesus, will, you will begin to do things differently in your life because it's what you desire to do. Right. Not what you have to do. It's because I want to do this thing. Right. And see, that's that's, for example, people approach... And I think Dallas Willard did the best writing on this in his Divine Conspiracy book years ago uh, when he talked about the fact that people read the Sermon on the Mount totally wrong. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount as a list of new rules to keep, mm-hmm. it will leave you in absolute utter despair oh, yeah. because there is no way on God's green earth that anybody can live up to that in self-effort and by as trying to keep a list of rules. But what Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about any of that. What Jesus is talking about is a new kind of attitude, a new kind of approach that just bubbles out of you naturally because you've taken on his nature, you've taken on a kingdom mentality, and you're living out of a new center. You're a different kind of person. So these things... Just naturally, you do these things. Well, and and I think that when you start to get your relationship with Jesus right, and you start looking at who you are and who you now want to be, Mm -hmm. at least for me, I look at that sermon and I go, I want to be a peacemaker. Right. I want to be humble. I want to, I look at each one of those and go, "I, I aspire to do that. Right. And what it also allows us to see and this is something we have to be honest about. There's a choice of humility to admit, I'm in process. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to turn the other cheek, and sometimes I succeed at doing that. And there are times when I don't succeed, and I have to repent and say, God, forgive me. But I really wanted to do that. I just, you know, maybe I wasn't there yet. I got caught off guard or whatever. But the point is, I'm quick to repent, and I'm quick to say, God, next time, 
help me to be able to actually do that because the attitude of the heart has become, I want to be like Jesus. I want to oh, respond yeah. like Jesus. And out of that comes a very different kind of life than those who are just trying to keep some kind of list of rules. I absolutely and, agree. And, uh, you know. And create... there is no list of rules, you know. I mean, oh, it, it really is. You won't do these things if you're living this way. Well, and, you know. And when, so it's telling you the two different types of people. Yeah. Well, when Paul says to Timothy, we know the law is good if you use it correctly. Then he goes on to say, but we also know that the law is not for the godly. The law is for the godless. And he goes on to list this horrible list of people. Oh. <laughs> you know, this, you know, it's it's for the fornicators, the adulterers, even people, you know, who murder their parents. And he, he just goes through this whole horrible list of people. And he says, that's who the law is for. The law is not for the godly because why? Because the godly, by their attitude and their desires, are living above that already. Right. They don't need a commandment that says don't do that when they don't want to do it. Right. You know, and that's the whole thing. And of course, increasingly, as we grow in wisdom and we grow in grace, we're able to be more like Christ. Absolutely. And it makes Christ's commandments to love your neighbor mm -hmm. that much easier. Yeah. And we, and I, I'm constantly telling people, they say, well, how many, you know, you talk to unbelievers, well, how many rules do you Christians have anyway? I say, we only have one, which <laughs> basically is a compound law. Love God and love your neighbor. Yep. And if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you won't want to do anything to harm your neighbor. You will not want to do anything to displease God. It's very simple. That's our one rule, love. Mm -hmm. you know. And when you understand love correctly, then uh, it fulfills all the laws, Paul says. Too many, too many churches, though, have taken that to the extreme of, you oh. know, we're, we're the wimpy Christians. Well, milquetoast love, yeah, 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 which has nothing to do it's with like, the Bible. No, no, no. Yeah, you know, you can't judge people. No, you can, and we're commanded to. <laughs> yes, we're uh, <laughs> we're commanded to apply God's judgments. You know, and if God says that murder is wrong, then you tell somebody that's wrong. Yeah, and that's not us judging. That's God judging. Right. You see, so when God says murder is wrong, and I say to someone, "Murder is wrong," they say, "Well, you're judging." No. God made that judgment already. I'm just simply the messenger. And, yeah, and I just should do informing it. you what the law says. <laughs> yeah. And I should do it lovingly. And so, for example, when I say to someone who's involved in sexual sin, whether it be fornication, mm -hmm. whether it be adultery, whether it be homosexuality, whatever, all those sins are sins. Yes. And when I say to someone that's wrong, they say, well, you're trying to push your morality on me. I say, no, it's not my morality. That's God's morality. So Absolutely. I'm just the messenger. You know, I'm not judging you. God has said this is what this is wrong, and this is what the consequence will be. I will judge you. It will it will you know doom your soul in hell if unless you repent of it. And there are too many people who go around. Oh well, if you really love people, you couldn't say those things. No, if you really love them, you will say those things <laughs> if you care. Well, exactly. You don't want somebody to be condemned. No, that's why Jesus. You know, doesn't I want don't anyone want to that. perish. Yeah, I mean. Even the people that have been the worst enemies of mine, I don't want them to go to hell. Mm -hmm. Even the people that, that I feel in politics that are doing things against my nation. No. I don't want them to burn I, forever. I, I, I pray for their conversion. I pray for them to be healed. I pray for their conversion, yes. You know, for example, there are, I could call a few names right now in political <laughs> activity that I pretty much loathe everything they do and everything they stand for. But I pray for them. Yes. And I pray that God opens their eyes and that they come to repentance because I know unless they do from the lying 
cheating, uh, deceptive things that they're doing that, you know, they're going to have one miserable eternity forever and ever and ever. And I just, you know, I don't want to see anyone have that. Yeah, no, I would agree completely. So we have a calendar that we're, we're going to talk about over probably several podcasts. And we have a generation that is going to have to face some of the worst things the Bible talks about, right? Yes, right. Um, I, I, it, it's, I read Revelation many times, and I've read Daniel many times, and, and then I still can't get my head wrapped around some of the things that are going to happen. Right. And I'm going, whew. Yeah. What's it going to take? What type of, what type of faith and what, what type of inner strength that's going to be provided, right? We know that the Spirit is here to help us. Right. What's that got to be like to stand up against a world that hates you? The whole world hates you now because mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're going to jump ahead a little bit and we'll come back. But mm-hmm. we're at a time where, let, let's say, you know, the kids that are 12 right now probably mm-hmm. are going to have to deal with the whole world hating them. If right. they're a Christian. If they're a true Christian. And wanting them dead. Yeah. I would imagine they'd have to have greater faith than the faith of the apostles. Well, that was the faith of the apostles. The mm-hmm. Most of the apostles laid down their lives for their faith. And this is where the answer becomes something that most people don't want to hear. This is the unpopular answer, which has always been Jesus' answer. Mm-hmm. And that is this. That the and C.S. Lewis emphasized this, the the basic spirit and characteristic of Christianity is martyrdom. Yep. And what it, he meant by that was this: not that we go around seeking to be martyrs, but that we are willing to die for what we believe. We always are willing to put our life on the line for what we believe. Christians today have come to the, this concept that you become a Christian to be blessed and have a good life here, and you can have your best life now, to quote someone. Wow. Uh, you know, and that's what Christianity is all about. When the early church uh, apostles and fathers would say to you, it is about laying your life down for the gospel. It is about sacrificing for the gospel. And Jesus said, if you try to save this life, you're going to lose it. But if you lay it down for my sake and for the gospel, you will save it. And so the kind of faith that will endure is a faith that has already resigned itself to the fact that if someone says to me, you've got to give up your faith or we're going to do this, this, or this to you, even to the point of death, I basically look at them and say, make my day. Because my life is hid away in Christ and God, and I'm secure. And if you take my life, so be it, if God allows that. If he doesn't allow that, you won't be able to do it, because I'm indestructible to God's through with me. So I'm just going to keep doing his will, and when he's ready for me to go, I don't want to be here five seconds longer. Right. So <laughs> so we need to build some Stevens. Yes. We need to build some Pauls and some... Apostle Jameses. Uh, yes. Yes. So all those men, we know... You know, Matthew got run through with a sword, and yeah. we and, know all these guys, what they went through. And if you read the early church records, you'll discover there were many, many mothers and women who were great martyrs, mm-hmm. who died, you know, literally saying to their children who were getting ready to be put to death, hold true to your faith. We'll be together in a, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, just hold on to your faith. Don't, don't give it up no matter what. And even though they would see their children killed in front of them, they would refuse. They would say, hold on to your faith. It'll be okay. And that takes real 
Christian eternal perspective. So we're far, far from that today. Well, <laughs> but we're we're not even in eyesight of it. Right. Well, so, if, if the true the true message of the gospel is love, and it's a love relationship with Christ. Christ said, there is no greater love than to lay your life down for another. And if you're laying your life down for Christ, it's showing that you truly love him right. more than anything else. Yes. And the early church, in fact, we, we see this in uh, uh, the, the bishop of Antioch. Uh, I'm, I'm just going blank on his name right now. I know it very well. But anyway, he was condemned to death and taken on a long journey to Rome. And he, we literally have some of his epistles, the letters he wrote to the various churches. And, uh, and he literally did not want anyone to intervene. He said, God has allowed me to come under the sentence of death. And he considered it to be an incredible privilege to die for Christ. Now, I'm not sure that the, that's the attitude that all of us should take. But anyway, it was his attitude. Mm -hmm. He felt like, you know, it was a privilege for God to allow him to leave that testimony. And he did leave a good testimony. Uh, if indeed someone could have intervened and gotten the sentence, uh, you know, reprimanded, that would have been, I think, maybe a good thing. But he basically said, don't bother. I, I'm excited about going and, and, uh, and laying my life down for Christ. And that, that's, that's an attitude that we just simply are nowhere close to. Well, Revelation says there's a special blessing for those who die in his name. Yes. Well, yeah. You'll be waiting under the altar, right? <laughs> yeah. Asking for you'll how be much you'll be the first raised from the dead. Yes. Yes. So we do have some people and being a veteran, I've got to see some of these guys that have laid their lives down for other people. So right. so I know that that a level of love is still capable in the world that we live in. Mhm. We, we see it in on our soldiers. Yes. And so we have to figure out how to unsoften the Christians. They need to get a little bit hard, quite honestly. Yeah, and there's a sense in which we, we harden Christians in the right way by getting their loves in order. Mm -hmm. When your love is in order, you will be uncompromising yes. and that's the right kind of hardness right yeah, but but you will not be hard in the wrong sense no. in the sense that you're hard on people and you're judgmental and you're critical and you're you know no, well, we got to stiffen that backbone no we got to stiffen the backbone we have become jellyfish uh spiritually and too moth too often become spiritual chameleons which are indistinguishable from any moral background we tend to crawl across so we need to become something that stands out because we just choose to be who we are in Christ. Now, I know we, we're really talking about a lot of the younger people that are going to be dealing with the most harsh part of the world to come. Right. But those of us that are adults now, we have to make some changes because we have to pass this legacy, this lesson on. Well, boy... J.D., you're talking about something now that's going to be a hard sell, but I'm getting ready to do that hard sell as much as possible to our, to our New Hope congregation uh, because I believe this year it's my job to help our people come to understand what the real mission of the church is over these next few years. There are people you know, in, in, in our church 
who are not going to see the second coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They're going to, they're going to see it, but they're not mm-hmm. going to see it in the flesh. They're going to go to be with Christ in right. spirit. Before, because, and I believe that will probably be true for me. Uh, if, if indeed these, some of these timelines are as they seem to be with the calendar, I don't plan to be around that long, okay? I uh, might be going back to some guys that live a couple hundred years, so. <laughs> so. But, uh, but I, I... God can do anything. He can do anything, but that's not, you know, unless... You're hoping that's not the case? <laughs> I'm hoping that's not the case because I, I, I long to be with Christ. I'm like Paul. I, you know, it'd be better just to go on, you know. But the point is, is that we have to be willing to sacrifice for something that is not immediately going to benefit my own person. Right. And that is also foreign to us. We've lost that. We, mm-hmm. You know, you go back five or six generations and people understood about leaving a legacy, working hard to leave something for your children. Today, the whole idea is, oh, no, my kids aren't getting an inheritance. I'm using the inheritance and living it up in my final years, you know. Uh, I'm not going to leave anything for them. They don't deserve anything, right. you know. And 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 family relations are often so bad. People are whole atti- ostracized anyhow. Yeah, yeah, they're ostracized anyway. So why should I leave them anything? They just fuss and fight over it. Right. So, but but we have to come to the place we begin to say, okay, we've got to lay down our lives and invest it in this next generation. We've got to raise up a generation of people who are literally warriors in the spirit mm-hmm. who know how to stand for the truth, who know how to literally make a good defense of the truth an apologia for the truth an apologetic yes. for the truth yes. and, and be able to make sense of uh, all the nonsense that's going to be going on around them. And that's going to take some unpacking because first off, we've got to come to the grips with the fact that so many believers are really half, at least half in the world. Mm-hmm. Couldn't live without some things in the world. Doesn't matter what the morality is behind it. I I need this service or I need this product. And like, you know, you take television, you know, how many people spend 40, 50 hours a week watching television? Yeah. Or, or movies that really they shouldn't be watching because it's just crazy filth. Well, and they have no clue that uh, the power of that kind of drama coming into their minds and spirit literally is forming them into a certain type of person because we are formed by experiences. And even though these are pseudo experiences, they are experiences all the same. Right. And 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 psychology would tell you that we're experiential beings. Yes. And we are forming ourselves through media experience and media experience is corrupting human nature to a huge degree. Yeah, and they're, they're, it's not to say that all media is bad. No, no, You no. have to be discerning. Yes. And and then, and then it got, there's so many ways to say this, but my grandmother's Native American, and she would talk about the two wolves, that there's a good wolf and a bad wolf in each one of us. Yeah. And <laughs> and the one that gets stronger and, and wins in the end is the one you feed. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so... Yeah. It really comes back to what we ingest. If you just eat sugar, you're going to have a lot of health problems. A lot. <laughs> right? Yep. And, and if you go and you ingest pornography, and you're going to have problems in your relationships. Yes. You're going to have problems in dealing with people in general. Yeah. If, you, if you're watching t- um, movies and TV shows that are about horror and murder and playing video games about, 
you know, killing people and stuff, you're not going to have the right attitude towards people no. or the life. There are good media. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that we're one of them. Yeah. But there are good media sources out there that people can partake in and not have to say, well, you just want me to give up all these things of, you know, I can't ever watch TV. No, 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 that's not true. No. There's good TV shows. There's good movies. Yeah. There's good radio and music. But you have to be discerning. And that's one of the things that we have to get people to understand. You may enjoy some of this stuff that you've been going through all this time, but it does it align with what your faith says you should be partaking in. And the other thing we have to teach people, too, is that your appetite will acclimate to what you are constantly taking in. Mm -hmm. And if you correct your intake... Your appetite will change. That's absolutely And true. it is so important that we do that because there are people who just, you know, well, those kinds of things bore me. Well, you know why it bores you? Because your appetites are set for the other thing. If I can use a physiological illustration, we now know that the majority of your immune system is literally in your gut. Mm-hmm. And the, there are good bacteria that you cannot live without. You literally can't live without them. Right. If, if we didn't have them, we'd all die. And there are bad bacteria. Now, the bad bacteria like a certain type of food. They like anything that creates an acidic environment. Mm-hmm. They love refined sugar. They love carbohydrates. They love starches. They, they, they want that because that creates an environment for them to literally proliferate. They right. can proliferate very fast. And, of course, the good bacteria that you need for your immune system and your health and all that, and they they also break down your food and help you to create nutrients that you can't create on your own, they die off in that environment. Right. And anybody that's ever had acid reflux, that's exactly what he just described, just so you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's interesting is we now know from research that if you have all these bacteria in your system because you've been eating the wrong things, those bacteria actually and I'm going to use a kind of a strong term here. This isn't the way they would describe it. I'm going to do it for kind of maybe shock value here. But there is a kind of mind control that these bacteria create. You're not making your food decisions on your own. Right. Because what they do is they send chemicals up the vagus nerve mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the brain, which cause you to crave the things they want. They want more sugar. They want more carbohydrates. They want more starch. They want more sweets. They want all of these bad oils. They want anything that will create an environment which allows them to thrive. So they will keep sending these chemical signals up the nerve into the brain, and you will have cravings for these foods, and you will find yourself struggling, struggling, struggling. And this is why most people never make the transition to healthy eating. But if you start eating right, yes, it will be difficult at first because you don't have any craving for these foods. You don't even like them. But if at first you keep at it and keep at it and keep at it, and of course, you know, use some wisdom, use some variety, use some creativity, but keep at it, keep at it. Eventually, what's going to happen is you're going to start changing all that. The good bugs will take over. They will proliferate. The others will die. They send chemicals up the vagus nerve as well. They start making you desire the good stuff. And all of a sudden, it, what was hard is easy. In fact, you find yourself enjoying, you know, I, <laughs> I always said I, when I was in college, I was a meat and potatoes kid, uh-huh. you know, and I hated vegetables. Well, I had an uncle who came through 
and uh, my first year of college, and he wanted to take me out to dinner, and I was all excited because I didn't have to eat in the school cafeteria. That was really like a big deal, you know. I didn't have money to go mm-hmm. out and eat uh, in a nice restaurant. So, and he loved Chinese food, so he wanted to go to this Chinese restaurant. Uh, I didn't like Chinese food. I'd never eaten Chinese food. Uh, so anyway, we go. I didn't know what to order, so somebody said something that chop suey was good. So I ordered chop suey. Well, of course, it's a bowl of vegetables, and it looked like a bowl of a bunch of fried worms to me (laughs) at the time, and uh, I could not eat it. I just, I mean, it tasted horrible to me. He sat there, enjoyed his food. We talked. I I don't think he even realized. I just kind of shoved mine to the side and threw a napkin over it. I didn't want to eat it. Uh, And... And then years later, a friend of mine tricked me into going out, my wife and I, going out into to getting Chinese food. <laughs> and when we, and he knew I hated Chinese food. But when we got there, this was one, a massive Chinese restaurant and it would seat hundreds of people. And uh, he said, I'm ordering a special that has about, you know, 15 different kinds of dishes. You'll find something you like. Well, I did. I found three or four things I really liked. So I started going back with my friends to eat those things. But guess what? I began to branch out, and I began to branch out. I began right. to branch out. And you know what? If I go into a Chinese restaurant today, probably one of the top five things I might order is chop suey. <laughs> <laughs> because it was an acquired taste. Right. And once I acquired the taste for it, I love it. Now... I now don't eat a lot of Chinese food because a lot of Chinese food isn't healthy. Some of it is and some of it isn't. But but the point is, is that I got an acquired taste and the acquired taste was better than just the other. So people need to learn that acquired virtue Can I go with is Thai food? very satisfying. Very satisfying. I love Thai food. Yeah, I do too. A lot and, more vegetables though. Yes, yes. That's one of the reasons I like it. Mm-hmm. So it ends up as a great point. And... There are a lot of things that we're going to talk about over over a period of time here that people can do differently and make changes. Um, but there's before we we're getting close to our time, so um, before we wrap up today, I wanted to point out a couple of things. One, if you examine your life right now and you've determined that I'm seeing some things on television, you know, nudity and things that I really I don't really need to participate in that. You know, because it isn't doing me any good and it's unnecessary. It's damaging to my relationship or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're very lucky. We live in an age where there's some tools to help with this now. Right. Uh, VidAngel's come out with this wonderful tool that you can go put filters on every show you watch. Right. And you can cut those things out. Now, that that, what that means is you can still watch a show that you like, but it's going to skip all the stuff you shouldn't be looking at. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, what an amazing time to live, right? Right. And the other thing I would say to people is, you know, going one step beyond that, once you become even more discerning, is to, and this is one of the things I taught my children, it's not always that you're seeing a bad scene or they're using bad language or blah, 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 but always be aware of the underlying philosophy that's being mm, propagated. Right, exactly. that too. Because you can have a program that someone would say, oh, it's a perfectly clean program, and I've had Christians tell me that, and I would go to watch the movie, and 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 about halfway through it, I'm just like, no, I'm not watching because the whole 
thing was teaching a philosophy that was anti-God, anti-Christ. Yes. It's subtle. It was very, very, tricky, very tricky. well done, but it was very clear that they were propagating attitudes that God that, does not want us to have. That's happening a lot more. Yes. Um, they're, it's like they're preparing people. And, you know, like I watch a lot of, of these things because, you know— I'm a cinephile. I love movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a long time, I've had this ability to actually differentiate, you know, see the difference. You know, I know the truth. And when you see something that's counter to the truth, you Mm -hmm. know, it's, you know, it's fraud. And so when I watch these things, I'm like, wow, this is what they're doing. But most people have no clue that that's the underlying um, thing. And I can separate that in my mind, but most people cannot. And so they're being prepared you know, to accept certain things right. that, that might come, well, you it's, know. It's a subtle form of brainwashing, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's also a subtle form of spiritual distortion. And so our perception gets distorted, and we actually get to a place we can't perceive certain things. So this is, <laughs> this is why, for example, if uh, my wife and I choose—I don't watch a lot of television. And I, I will watch during—like for right now, you know, the last week I have probably watched more television than I've ever watched because college football— playoffs and bowl games were on because I like the sports. But after that's over with, you know, that's pretty much it for me. Uh, uh, but, you know, my wife will record a few programs that we like, and then she'll say, well, do you want to watch them? Well, yeah, the reason I like her to do that is I absolutely, and this is just my thing, nobody else has to adopt this, but I absolutely detest commercials. They, oh, they oh, drive so me. So do I. They literally <laughs> I drive me up. The, yeah, so okay. you know. <laughs> they drive me up the wall. They're insulting they're ridiculous. Uh, Only on, the on advertisers the, like them. Yeah, yeah. On the whole, and I, I just, you know, and so when she records it, of course, I we can blast right through those. Yep. I watch them, and that's fine. But even so, sometimes I'm just thinking, uh, the brainwashing going on here. You know, even even the idea. You know, there's this wonderful relationship between this man and this woman, and you're just kind of, and they want you to cheer it on, but it's all fornication it's right. all you know and we're supposed to be cheering and, this and, you know and that's exactly right we we have to start looking at what we're consuming right and not just what we're consuming but who's feeding us yeah and even, like i won't watch some things because a certain studio or director has put it out because i know that person is anti-christian that they do all kinds of things that are bad in our society yeah. You have to become a, a a student of what you're going to do, and, and you have to be very, very discerning in what you intake. Yeah. And this well, is why I am so much for being a part of creating this alternate culture that will possibly provide things that are safe for Christian people, that, that are quality, that— scratch that itch that fill that desire to you know yeah but you can say hey you can watch this and you can watch this with your kids and you don't have to worry that there's some indoctrination message or, or you and know. i think we're getting some of that now with the we're like, starting pure to flicks. pure flicks is a great service that has a lot of right. family friendly stuff and very safe dallas jenkins and his group you know great the chosen movies and the, with the chosen chosen series there's good stuff come that is out there, and it's we are seeing some of that, 
and I think you're going to see it grow we and need, it needs to. And we right. need to see a lot more of it in every field. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm cheering on the chosen and some of those things they're doing, but we need to be doing that, you know, even in what would some people would consider secular, right. but not secular in the sense that it's being done from a Christian worldview, you know, so we could have a, uh, you know, uh, a, a movie that is mythological, but it's teaching Christian values. It's teaching Christian virtues. Right. It's teaching courage and integrity like and the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and, yeah, Chronicles exactly. of Narnia and Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Those kind of. Things. Yeah, we need this kind of stuff. And what is more, we need to quit simply settling for something that doesn't have something bad in it. We need stuff that is actually positively uplifting stuff that's actually educational that's actually making us think about life the way we should be thinking about it and that's the culture we've got to create it's funny because i i listened to glenn black and they just had a conversation about that on his show christian movies and christian entertainment used to be really bad because they couldn't they wanted to get the, a lot the, of it still is they wanted to put a message out right and mm-hmm. try to win somebody over to christianity by the end of the movie but they didn't tell a story very well. No. And so it was a horrible movie with a great message. Yeah. <laughs> which gets almost no what no right. viewers. Which, yeah. <laughs> which we've lived with that for most of the time that there's been television or movies. Right. But we're now seeing an era where the Christians are learning to tell stories really, really well. Yeah. And, and, and make really good movies. And there's people like Lewis and Tolkien who really put an emphasis on storytelling. And uh, and now some, there are, there's a generation rising up that's saying, you know, we've got to learn to tell really good stories, and they're doing it, and they're they're writing really good cinematic stories, and mm-hmm. they're they're bringing it together in a way that it's you know, regardless of what worldview you come to that movie with, you are impacted by a story that you know, right? And, you know, and, exactly, right. and and it's just powerful. Well, it's one of the reasons I love Lord of the Rings because mm-hmm. you know it basically. It, it lays out the gospel, but it doesn't tell the story of the gospel. Right. Like, no. oh, and you're, it's it's like it's it's you own know what you're looking mythology. At. It's but all changed metaphor. There's yeah. so much. Like, if you if you read like some of his other works that like his histories and like the Silmarillion and stuff. Right. Like, there's so much amazing theology in all of that. Yeah. And that's that was like the basis underneath it all. Right. But when you go and watch it, like a secular person watches it and says, "This is amazing," you yeah. know. Yeah. But they're getting the gospel like in a way that is well, so ex- palatable. Yeah. You know. Well, see, I often ask, you know, I, I do this all the time, but I ask people, uh, I was teaching a class a while back, and I asked them, I said, somebody tell me what is the number one message in the Lord of the Rings that comes through powerfully but is never actually said explicitly. And, you know, there was a lot of head scratching in the room. Uh, and, and pretty soon I just said, well, you know, and they, they, there were some, you know, comments and things and some of them were good, but it wasn't, it wasn't the central message. And the central message of the Lord of Rings is real simple. If you compromise with evil, you lose, right? You lose. You cannot compromise with evil that if you compromise with the ring of power, you lose. You may think you're getting something. You may think that you need this, but in the end you lose. And that was the powerful message that Tolkien got through. And even a worldly person can sit there and be deeply impacted by that right. and, and may not even realize what's happening, but they're, they're being moved in the right direction. And, and you know what that 
looks like in terms of logistically mm-hmm. is that can be used as like a gateway into something that's more gospel oriented, more directly right. messaged, right. you yep. know, because, you know, we're not just supposed to go out and bash people's head in with the gospel. You know, sometimes the soil needs to be tilled. Sometimes the seed needs to be planted. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it needs to be watered. There's a whole lot of things that yeah. need to happen in someone's life before, you know, the the they can birth out, you know, something of a new creation, you know. Right. And so right. there's a lot of elements that can be done and that, you know, need to be done yeah. to really make a full-fledged approach. Well, Lewis was the great champion of this. He's, he said, for example, he says, it's not that we need more Christians writing Christian books. He said, what we need is Christians in every field writing books that are the best books in the field. So whenever you needed Mm -hmm, a good book mm -hmm. on science, the best book in the field was written by a Christian. Whenever you needed a good book on medical stuff, the best book in the field was written by a Christian. He said, if we were to do that, we would change the world. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, that's what we're not doing, and that's what we should be doing. And that brings us back to this culture we need to create. We need to create a culture that's going to have to, by virtue of what the world has insisted on, we're just going to have to be willing to be different and we're going to have to be separate. And and there's nothing that, because they're not going to allow us allow it to happen the other way. And we're going to have to be willing to create a, a marginalized community that is willing to embrace the values we believe in, teach those values, raise up a generation that is different and doesn't and is not afraid to be ridiculed for being different. And in fact, uh, is, is proud to stand for Christ and for the truth and yet love that culture that's ridiculing them. Learning how that we're not different and we don't hate those people and we're not different and we don't mock those people like they're mocking us. We love them in return. We turn the other cheek. We go the second mile mm-hmm. and we do our best. And that will, of course, help us to win some of those people to Christ. Right. And our greatest evangelistic tool will be such a community of grace and love. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree with all of that. Yeah. And my question to the listener would be this. Let's say you have a child that's 10, 12 years old, Mm -hmm. and we just told you that that child is going to face some of the most horrendous things any human's ever faced on this planet in all of time. Mm -hmm. Do you care about that? Yeah. What if you do, what are you going to do to prepare them to be ready for it? Yeah. And and that's a question that we Christians have got to start seriously thinking. I've told my wife today, I said, we're going to... This year, I'm hoping to create a, uh, a committee in our church that its only purpose is to explore what are the things that we need to be doing as a church to prepare what I call the kingdom generation that's going to see the kingdom ushered in, that's going to be on the planet when it happens and go through all the things that are going to happen and how, you know, we've got to create the schools, we've got to mm-hmm. create the educational systems, we've got to create ways of creating grandparents for those kids who will live the life in front of them because they also... By example, and they By will example, learn. because the kids aren't going to pick it up by words no. alone. They've got, it's got to be by exemplified. By example, they will learn. They've got, it's got to be exemplified. It's got to be lived in front of them. It's more caught than taught. Mm-hmm. And so we got to work on the whole Genera- all the generations, yes. but we've got to especially focus on that younger generation. And, and we are not going to just protect them from the bad. We're going to give them the good stuff. We're going to equip them to know things that they should know that the world has not allowed them to know. 
and we're going to teach them about real history. We're going to teach them about, uh, you know, the real science and all those things so that they are able to literally step into the world and perform and outperform. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I think we're out of time for today, but we will definitely need to continue this conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hardly begun. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do to help people understand what this looks like and and what are the next steps? A lot of work just to help even, you know, the three of us in this mm-hmm. podcast room right now. <sighs> you know, I realize I don't understand what this is going to look like yet, but by God's grace and through a lot of prayer and a lot of interaction with other believers, God will reveal it. He, he right. will make us adequate to the task if we will embrace and the And there'll task. be beautiful things that happen because of it. Yes, yes. All right. Well, I thank you so much for coming and talking to us today, oh, and I look forward pleasure. to continuing this conversation. Mm-hmm. So this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we've been talking about, as Pastor Gary just said, the kingdom generation and what we need to do to prepare Because we now know that we have a calendar that kind of lays things out for us that allows us to be a seasonal prediction, at least, of when some of these things are likely going to take place. And we know that we are rapidly coming to the end of the age and that the generations that will face the most terrible time on the planet are alive today. So we will continue this conversation and what comes next. So if you would, please take a moment subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to visit our new website at vrbroadcast.org where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests also find us on facebook at a voice going in the wilderness and do us a favor recommend the podcast to friends and family again thank you for listening and have a blessed day